What better words to sing and say and live than you're the reason I live uh, in the midst of uh, the season we are in in our country, huh? So great reminder to us this morning. And let me just say to you that I, on this new year of 2021, uh, this morning after seeing Monty give mission ops in front of a University of Oklahoma sign, I have resolved Let's move this. I'm going to knock this over if I don't. I have resolved that before I retire from this church, I will at some point come to you via video from Clemson <laughs> University. So, now I tell you, I say, Lord, I'm trusting you for that moment <laughs> with a big old tiger paw sitting right there in the back. Roll tide tomorrow night. Get, get revenge. Get revenge for whooping my tiger. So. That wasn't planned, but Monty's not here, so we're good, right? So, it's a pleasure to be with you. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 21, 20 through 28. Luke chapter 21, as we continue our second week of the series, Resolve to be Ready. It says, Your Redemption is Near, is the title this morning. Um, uh, this is a, uh, we'll see, a highly complex text for my PE brain was very stretched this week. I kept studying, and every time I'd study, I'd find another layer and another layer and another layer. And so um, we actually, I'm preaching two weeks in a row, uh, and um, uh, so you get me two weeks in a row, but I'm going to cut short a little bit our text and pick it up next week because I felt like what we're going to go over this morning, we had to really get if we're going to be able to understand the last 10 verses of chapter 21. In light of that, uh, I think if we took a survey this morning, my guess is nearly 100% of you would agree and believe in the return of Christ. Can I have a raise of hands? No doubt. My question to myself and to you and I think Jesus' question to us would be, are you and I aware of his return throughout the week? Did it somehow, his return, figure into how you spent your week? Did it, did it fill you with hope and peace as you faced the difficult circumstances or even a crisis? Did it give you strength to resist temptation as you thought about seeing him face to face? Does it affect how you spend your money? And did it calm you in the midst of the chaos in our country in the past week? If the answer is no, which it probably is for the majority of us and myself, like, like, like it's just not as prevalent as it needs to be, then you and I are missing out on one of the most powerful motivations to godly living. And in the parallel passages of our text this morning, our text is Luke 21, 20 through 28, and two parallel passages, meaning two other passages in the gospel that deal with the same thing, that have a few more details, etc., are Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and 25. It says in those two parallel passages, let the reader hear. Jesus says, let the reader hear this, that God wants us to get this, to internalize this so that his 
return will actually affect how you and I live. These words from Jesus open up a huge, and you can capitalize huge and use any synonym you want to describe huge. I'm telling you, it opens up a huge subject about biblical prophecy and his return in the end of all time. And look, if you've been around Christianity at all, you have heard some crazy folks talk about the end of time. Have you not? It was, it's already been supposed to happen. Thousand, they know the exact time. If, they, if you ever hear someone, let me just say this, that says, I know the exact time Jesus' return, turn him off. Because he don't know. Only God knows. Matter of fact, in every... One in every 30 New Testament verses return, to, return or refer to the second coming of Christ. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. 23 of 27 New Testament books return, refer to this event in history. For every biblical prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on the second coming of Christ. There are 1,800 references alone in the Old Testament. It is a huge topic in the Bible. So what I'm going to do in the next 35 minutes is I'm going to unpack all of it for you. That was sarcasm. <laughs> now I know why Dr. Bach, one of the world's leaders uh, on the New Testament, said, and Luke specifically, said this is a highly complex text. God wants his people, I think, to understand, though, that human history has already been written. Our world is not going to end until God says it's going to end. Our world is not going to end because of some, some kind of something in the environment runs out, although we need to be good stewards of our environment. And in Luke 21, Jesus has given a sermon to his followers about his return 48 hours before his death. Here's what's happening here. The leaders and the people of Israel have determined that Jesus is not the Messiah. They have oppressed the poor. They did not recognize God's visitation to them. They have rejected the gospel, and they now have made a decision to kill the very Son of God himself. It is at this high point, maybe you put it this way, at this high point of this slap in the face to God himself from his people that he has been so faithful to, it is at this high point that Jesus is sitting with his disciples up on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them what only God can tell them, what the future will look like. In verse 5, the disciples were speaking. Monty went over this last week, but for review for us, Monty was telling us the disciples were speaking about how incredible the temple was in Jerusalem. It was adorned with noble stones. And the beauty and size of this temple, uh, they were correct to be amazed by it. It was equal to, if not surpassing, the seven great wonders of the world. Josephus said that one of the stones in its foundation, just one, was 67 feet by 7 feet by 9 feet. 
It had gold doors, bronze doors, gold grape clusters. And it was 1.5 million square feet. With our expansion, we're going to have 20,000. So just put that in context. The disciples thought Jesus was about to come into power, earthly power. And they were picturing, if you would, this Messiah who would, who would rule Israel and therefore the whole world. And that they, as Monty said last week, they would have big old offices. Now, look, I'm looking forward to my office, so I get that a little bit. Like, I'm going to have an office. It's going to be bigger than this, right? I have room for my stuff, my big old turkey on the wall. But, the, you know, they had this thought like, man, I'm, I'm, that's where I'm officing. And from there, we and Jesus will rule Israel and the world. Verse 6 tells us Jesus throws cold water on their worldly dreams with these words. The day will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, that will not be destroyed. What causes them to ask this? And that takes us to our outline where it says the key verse to understanding, Luke 21, 5 through 38, the entire chapter starting in verse 5, is verse 7. If we don't get verse 7, we don't get what's going on. Here's what verse 7 says. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So, so they're amazed by the temple. Jesus says this temple is done. And they go, what? So when is it going to be torn down? And what will the sign or signs be that it's, the time is getting close in terms of it being torn down? How will we know when the end will come? We need to understand that Jesus' answer to them was the longest answer he ever gave to a question in the entire scriptures. Again, the longer and more detailed versions are in Matthew 24 and 5 and Mark 13, as maybe you go back and read this week. Here's the context of Luke 5 through 19, our previous verses. Jesus tells the disciples that the future is worse than any scientist or environmentalist or any expert could ever imagine. That until he returns in all his glory in this second time, he's saying, folks, we are not headed toward utopia. Far from it. Jesus in 5 through 19 in some ways is talking about birth pains. The beginning of the end. It's not the birth. It's not the return of Christ. It is the beginning, though, of the end. In verse 8, and Monty went through this, he says, here's what you'll know. These birth pains, the beginning, not the end, but the beginning, will consist of deception. That between my first coming and second coming, there will arise a false Christianity that maybe is bigger than true Christianity. Do you see that around you today? There's birth pains, deception. Secondly, he said there will be disasters in verses 9 through 11. A long saga of conflict at every level. Earthquakes, famines, tornadoes, catastrophic events, wars, 
terrors, the list goes on and on and on. Do you see those birth pains? And then desert, desertion and death, verses 12 through 17. He says, you're going to be persecuted because you believe in me. Matter of fact, some of your family will turn on you. Some of you will be killed. You do know that in some countries today, if you come to Christ and your family finds out, they will kill you or have you killed. It's an honor killing. It, it, look, it's not uncommon. It's why so much secrecy in many countries uh, takes place when someone comes to Christ. Do you know that 70 million Christians have been martyred and killed and slaughtered since Jesus said these words worldwide? So all of these things are going to happen between the first two comings of Christ. These are facts of history. Jesus said it then, and it happens because Jesus writes history. We know that prior to the birth of a child, there is an increase in pain. Well, half of us know that. <laughs> or, or let me put it this way. Half of us know it intellectually. I saw it. But, but the women folk here, they know it. Uh, they know it for real. This is a great metaphor to use here. It is just the beginning, these early pains. Before the return of Christ, the pain will increase, Matthew 24, 8 tells us. And yet at the same time, Matthew 24 through 14 says, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and all the nations will know who Jesus is. They will know who he is. Matter of fact, if you look around our country, people know who he is. They know who he claims to be. He's not a secret. Many will be saved, but the vast majority, Matthew tells us in other scriptures, will reject him. In some ways, it is the best of times and the worst of times. Dickens himself, Charles Dickens, wrote those very words in the tale of two cities in 1859. Biblical prophecy seems confusion, but its point, why it's written and why it's given is to bring clarity to the Christ follower, to God's people about all things, even the end of time. So if deception, disasters, and desertion and death are sort of this first act, the beginning birth pains of world history. How in the world will you and I know, how will they know, that's the question, when the temple will be destroyed in the end, the end of history will come. Verses 20 through 24 give us the answer this morning in our text. So let me read our whole text. And again, next week we'll spend the majority of our time here in 20 through 24, and we'll pick up 28 through 38 next week. Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. 
Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot, excuse me, by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People are fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, my followers, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's first look at, as your notes say, the shocking sign of the destruction of of Jerusalem, verses 20 through 24. When we put Matthew 24 and 25, one of the parallel passages in Mark 13, the other parallel passage along with Luke 21, so I want to encourage you to read those. Why I'm saying them to you over and over this week, we get this full picture of what Jesus is saying. And when we look at all these texts together, we see that Jesus is speaking about Two different time periods. Jesus is being prophetic here. He is predicting the future. He is doing just like Isaiah did, like Jeremiah did, like Zechariah did, like John did in the book of Revelations. When speaking of biblical prophecy, there's more, there's often, there's usually more than not. The speaking of a dual time, of a near future, if that makes sense, something's going to happen in the near future, and a far future, something that's going to happen similar to what happened in the near future and the far future, but many times much worse. That's normal for biblical prophecy. So it happens in the Old Testament when spoken of by the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is doing that here as well. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed and Rome would crush it. And that's exactly what happened 40 years after Jesus spoke of this. Verse 24 or verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Forty years later, it, it happens. But this near future destruction, follow me here, of Jerusalem was to be a preview, a trailer, if you would, a picture of the reality of what was to come in the far future when Christ actually returns. Jesus wants to make clear that when Jerusalem falls the first time, it's fallen one time before, 586 B.C. in the Babylon invasion. But when it falls after he speaks here, it is not the end. If it was, 
something's wrong, right? Because it, it, it fell in 70 AD, and it have been a lot of years since 70 AD. But he wants us to know at the same time when Jerusalem falls, it shows us a picture of, or this preview of, what the ultimate fall at the end of time will look like. Are you with me so far? Okay. I got Benji Baker's teenage daughter saying yes, so we're good. Both of these are eschatological events, and that's a big word for the final events in the history of the world. Both of these are events with the near future fall of Jerusalem being a down payment or a guarantee that the end will happen. If Jesus can tell them and us, as he said this day, 48 hours before his death, that the temple will be destroyed in the near future and it happens, then you better listen to him about the far future because it's going to happen too. That's what's happening here. So let's take a look in the near future, a preview of what is to come at the end. Again, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, even in our lifetime, is a pretty familiar scene, is it not? (laughs) Yeah, sort of day in and day out. And yet we know 40 years after Jesus said this, Jesus was, uh, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman armies who literally flattened Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. Titus Vespasian, the son of the emperor, attacked the city and he killed people, Josephus says, until he had no more people to kill and no more people to plunder. Caesar then sent the order to demolish the whole city, but he said, I need you to leave a stone, a small portion of the wall, the stone wall, as a testimony to the incredible power of Rome. So there was this arrogance there. I want to show you how powerful Rome is. That didn't age well. The temple had been in a rebuild if you think about this, since Herod the Great, at 20 BC, before Christ, they started doing this rebuild of the temple. So it was in the midst of that when Jesus said this, and they didn't finish it to AD 63. Totally finished, you know, January 27th, going to open our new facility. Seven years, seven years. And then it was completely destroyed. In verse 21, it says says, when you see this happen, here's what I want you to do. All in Judea flee to the mountains, and if in the country, stay out of the city. Look, get out of here. When you see armies coming around, you need to go. Verse 22 says, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. So my mind goes, what is all that was written? And I don't have time to get into it, but all the Old Testament passages, right? It's to fulfill what was written. This has been talked about. And they knew, as Jews, the disciples knew. Josephus again tells us there's one million Jews were killed and 100,000 were taken captive. Children were cooked for food in the midst of the destruction that Jesus speaks of here. Jesus is speaking of the near future, tells us, tells his men Jerusalem must fall before the end 
And it did in 70 AD. Now, when we think about this, for these are the days of vengeance. Sometimes we think horizontally in that Rome laid out its vengeance against Jerusalem. But this is much bigger than Rome. This is a vengeance against the Jewish people. This is a divine vengeance for Israel's unfaithfulness and idolatry. And Rome is simply God's instrument of wrath here. God is the ultimate cause of this tragic but complete destruction of Israel. Here's what we know, though. From Acts 1.11, we know this is a temporary, uh, temporary for Jerusalem and Israel. Because Jesus is going to return right at this place. And, and Paul lays it out clearly in Romans 11, 8 through 32. He gives this full description of Israel's inclusion when Christ returned. Because he says, for God has the power to graft them in, what, again. So it's temporary. Verse 24 says, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what does that mean? It means three things. One, the destruction of Jerusalem is limited in nature, meaning it will not always be in this position with God, as I just mentioned, that Israel is going to be grafted back in. Secondly, it's a period from 586 B.C., which was the first Babylonian captivity when Israel first went into captivity until Christ's return. And through this whole time, we know Israel has been under attack or under influence by the Gentiles or being oppressed by the Gentiles. It's that period. And then three, Paul uses the words, the fullness of the Gentiles, meaning this is season where God has made the hearts of Gentiles open and has hardened the hearts vast majority of the Jews. So Jesus lays that out here. That's the near future. We saw it happen. It happened. Jesus said it would happen, and it happened. Now, let's look at the far future, a reality of what is to come at the end. So again, one way to look at Jesus' answer in verses 20 through 24 is to look through those lens of the near future. But now we take those lens off and we put on these far future. These are big binoculars, folks. Way down the line, this far future lens. That's the second way to look at it. The same event, but taking place in two time periods. And only God can do this. The key is to look at all the text that speaks of this, uh, this prediction or prophecy by Jesus. So let me just read to you Mark 13, or first Matthew 24, 15. Correlates with Luke 20. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, these are Jews he's talking to. They're familiar with what he's talking to. They, he, he didn't have to go into layers deep like I did. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. So what does Mark say? Mark 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to stand, 
let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it's desolation, just a shortened version of the same thing, has come near. Now, over Christmas, I exposed my two grandchildren, Claire and Samuel, to the abominable snowman. Okay? That's not him here, right? They were terrified. <laughs> Literally terrified. I will be a great grandfather one day, but not that day. <laughs> Notice what Matthew says. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet who? Daniel. Jesus knows the book of Daniel, do you think? Jesus wrote the book of Daniel through Daniel who is standing in the holy place, flee to the mountains. Notice Mark. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, that is when you better get the heck out of there because what? It's going to get bad. Are you with me? Okay. There's so much else I could say. I'm just trying to walk us through this. This is the sign that triggers the end of time. If you read Daniel, you'll know it starts the 3.5 year, three and a half year tribulation that Daniel talks about in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, Daniel 13. It takes some hard study, trust me. The last three and a half years before Christ returns. There's this seven year period and when you see the abomination of desolation, and we're going to define that in a minute. When you see that happen, it's worth the halfway point. We got three and a half years left. It triggers the tribulation, and then Christ returns. That, look, there's some people that disagree with the timeline, but the general principle is what I just told you, the, the, the generality of it. We know what desolation is, do we not? I mean, I think to ruin, to destroy, to tear up. But what in the world is an abomination of desolation? It's not the abominable snowman, right? It is something that has happened. Here's what it is. It's something that has happened that has brought blasphemy on God's name. It is an act of idolatry that blasphemes his name, blasphemes his honor, his worship, his glory, and his very place as God. In Daniel 8, 9, 11, and 12, it lays out this picture of a prince or false prophet that will come along and make a covenant with Israel to be Israel's protector because Israel, Israel is vulnerable and it's living in a hostile world. He is disguised as a man of peace. This is a far future He is a great world leader, but we know him. Scripture speaks of him as who? The Antichrist. And in the middle of the week, quote unquote, or three and a half years, he puts a stop to the grains of sacrifice. He stops sacrificing in the temple and he creates what Daniel talks about 
of an abomination of desolation in the last three and a half years of human history. Here's what he'll do. He'll go into the very holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. He will set up an idol of himself and demand that the whole world worship him. He is trying to create a world religion, and he is the object of the world's worship. Here's what Paul writes about that very thing in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, the end time, the end of time will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, abomination of desolation, proclaiming himself to be who? God. Revelations 13, 5 and 7. For three and a half years, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Daniel 9, 27. He will forge many and strong alliances. See there, he's making a partnership with Israel, a peace pact. But halfway through this seven-year period, halfway through the seven years, he will banish worship and prayers at the place of worship, a desecrating obscenity he will set up. So you want to know in the far future, in our future, in their future, and our future, when the end is going to come, what is the sign? We don't know the exact time, but what is the sign? When you and I see a world leader who makes a peace pact with Israel to protect Israel. It's fake, but he says, Israel, I want to... I want to protect you in the middle of that protection while armies and the enemies of Israel start to move and surround Israel like never before in the history of the world. And you see this leader or Antichrist going into the holy place and putting up an idol of himself to establish a world religion, calling on all the world to worship him. You and I will know that is the sign that the return of Christ is near. Biblically, a lot of people say it's three and a half years from that point. So don't be deceived. Let the reader what? Hear. Let the reader understand. We're in birth pains now. We're in the church age. We're in the last phase, folks. But do not be deceived. Let the reader hear. So my question was, as I studied this passage, it's why we're not going to get through it all today. Is there a preview or a near future event of this kind of behavior by a ruler that's known in history? Does that make sense? Like Jerusalem had a near future. It was torn down 70 AD. But then we have this far future is there a near future of the desolation or abomination of desolation? Did something happen after Daniel wrote those words in Daniel 9, 11, 12, 13? When, when he described this abomination of desolation, was there anything that happened after that, if you would, that was the near future? Because I'm telling you, biblical prophecy, more times than not, has a dual what? 
meaning near future, far future. Well, there was. And I've, some of you may look at me like, Jeff, you dumb as rocks for, for a guy supposed to know the Bible. I had never heard of this. There is in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 describes it. 300 years later, it happened. Three centuries later, there was a guy in history known as Antiochus. Antiochus IV. Anybody ever heard of Antiochus? Okay. Well, maybe y'all need to be preaching. <laughs> he was a Greek-speaking of the Seleucid dynasty, well-known in history. I, I knew that name, but I didn't know the connection. In Daniel 11, Daniel writes that this person pretends to be the defender of Jerusalem. There will be a person that happens in the near future before the end. And they will go to war against Egypt and take everything. He comes to power in Israel or to influence Israel by bribing them of all the stuff that he, he takes from Egypt. He goes into Egypt and crushes it, takes all the spoils, comes back and bribes Israel to trust him. I want to take care of you. I want to give you things. I want to protect you. He has an army of 250,000, and so Israel trusts him. And then in the year 167, 168 B.C., some people differ on that date, three centuries after Daniel writes of this person in Daniel's, Daniel 11, it happened just as Daniel said it would. On his way back to Egypt, to crush them again, just to stomp on the last remains, he receives word from Rome via Cyprus because the Roman ships were docked in Cyprus. And, and what's amazing is Daniel talks about all that. Not to make war with Egypt. There was one army the more powerful than Antiochus, the force, and it was Rome. He was under their authority. And he knew he'd get crushed, so he was ticked that he couldn't go back and ravage Egypt. So he took his rage out on who? On Israel. He took his army of 250,000 people, and he slaughters them. Look, remember, he had been their protector for three and a half years. So they weren't afraid of him. They saw him and his army coming in, hey! That's our man. That's who we trust in. That's who we believe in. That's who's given us stuff and made us rich and, and protected us from outside intervention from other countries. Our man, Auntie. Antiochus took the Jewish enemies and set them up in all the positions of power in the city of Jerusalem. He ordered no more sacrifices to God. Maccabees, a Jewish leader and historian, says he set up the abomination of desolation on the altar by putting an image of Zeus on the altar where Jehovah was supposed to be worshipped. Went into the holy of holies. He even slaughtered a pig and stuffed the priest's throat with pork. Just a desecrate them and dishonor them. 
When Daniel prophesied this, he had this near future lens he was looking through. And it happened 300 years later in Antiochus. It was a preview of what was to come in the far future lens of the Antichrist that I spoke of before that, who sets himself up in the temple in Jerusalem to be worshiped. Near future, far future. So I say to us this morning, let the reader what? Understand. Both the destruction of Jerusalem and the abomination of desolation happened in the near future. And so the far future is coming. I love it because it gives us great confidence that all that Jesus said would happen, all the Old Testament prophets that would happen, happen as a preview and now will happen again in the end. And it says next as we wrap up here this morning, the shocking sign of the coming of the Son of Man uh, we're going to look at those verses next week. That's what I said. We're going to pick our passage up and finish. But we had to get verses 20 through 24 this morning. Uh, because I don't know about you. I needed to unpack what uh, abomination of desolation was to give us a clear picture. But lastly, I want to encourage us this morning. The shocking response of the Christ follower. Look at verse 28. Jesus said, now, when these things begin to take place, all that I talked about this morning and more, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. I love that. All these things concerning the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says, straighten up, raise your hands, your redemption is near. Folks, if you and I are alive at that moment and we've trusted Christ, God's command to us, his exhortation to us is to straighten up, to raise our heads, raise our hands. We sang about this morning and say, yep, I have trusted in that one. We are eternally safe and we are soon to have our resurrection bodies. I'll finish with Matthew 24, 42. Christ is coming back. Therefore, Matthew writes, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Take a minute this morning to ask the question, so what? So what this morning? How does the return of Christ, the inevitable, for sure, 100% truth that he is going to come back again for his people. How does that affect your life? How is that not affecting your life maybe as it should? Take a minute to ponder that and what your life and decisions and choices, whether in public or private, uh, may be changed by that very fact. Take a minute and ask that question.